Success Stories is presented by theconstantinvestor.com. I'm Alan Kohler, and every week my writing and podcasts put the financial world in context with a focus on the issues that matter. As a member of The Constant Investor, you can also access our exclusive Facebook group where I'll answer your questions directly. Join us today. It's just a dollar for the first month. Now here's Catherine Robson with a success story. Lisa Ray Hennessy will tell you that you learn to speak up and to back your judgment. Lisa's not only a Harvard MBA graduate, but her corporate advisory work has been recognised in Harvard Business School case studies. And she's now a global representative for the iconic institution. Trained as an electrical engineer, Lisa's true passion is helping organisations thrive, using her skills to help startups flourish with Angel Investor Network scale and assisting leading medical research institute Walter and Eliza Hall commercialise their groundbreaking research. But Lisa needed all of her confidence and judgement to craft a new career here in Australia, having moved here with her Australian-born husband, as the business landscape here differs from the US in more ways than you might expect. I think, and this is going to be a gross overgeneralization, but I think it's a very risk-averse environment here. So therefore, obviously, the way stocks have been going since, you know, about 2008, it's very risky. Um, yes, but if you had looked, you know, the 30 years prior, it wasn't as risky. I would actually say, and I'm not an expert in real estate, but I actually feel like it's much more of a risk. If you look at people's portfolios in the States, they're um, assets as they relate to property is much lower than what it is here. I, I was really quite shocked um, at the differential between here and the US. And so for you, you must be comfortable with risk even beyond you know what is the norm from the culture you initially come from to the extent that not only do you have a history of investing in stocks that are listed, but also you've got a history of starting companies, investing in, in small startups. How did you become comfortable having that profile? I think it probably goes back to kind of a risk-averse start to my career, but then in my early 30s, I worked at a series of three startups. Um, you know, one never got off the ground, never got funding. One. So got, you were an employee? Or yeah, you I was an owner? employee. Yep. Yeah. One uh, got sold and one went public. And I think it was being in that environment and probably being in San Francisco at the time, you saw things went up and down, but overall, everything was kind of heading in the upward motion. So I think... Um, it's fine to be to choose risky investments, but um, you have to have many of them, obviously, <laughs> so to hedge some of this risk. I mean, that's kind of always been my approach, and um, and I don't have a lot of investments in just one sector. It's across many. So that's kind of my approach. And how did you find yourself early in your career in San Francisco? What was your original discipline and and how did you find yourself in that environment? So I had uh, spent several years after business school in consulting. So what was your initial undergraduate study? Oh, I studied electrical engineering. Then I went to go work for General Electric in the medical equipment business, in the lighting business as well. So light bulbs, manufacturing of light bulbs. Um, And medical equipment was MR and CAT scanners, uh, radiology, anything in the radiology department we produced. And early on when you were trying to decide what your undergraduate study would be, had you considered business? I did take a number of business-related electives. 
in my fourth year at school, I had a little bit more flexibility in my schedule. So I took, you know, economics and marketing. So I kind of knew that's the direction I went ahead. But that being said, I did spend six years in manufacturing before I, I did go on to get my MBA. And your MBA is not just any MBA. It's an MBA from Harvard Business School. Yeah. What was it like to be a student there? I had to choose between three schools. And I actually chose Harvard because it did was going to force me to have a very, you know, very be very opinionated and speak those opinions. So because of the Socratic method. Um, so the Socratic method is where it's sort of a dialogue, a question and answer. Mm-hmm. It's not, no one's lecturing you. You are... Uh, coming up with like Socrates yes with the answers yourselves yeah it's a it's kind of a a weird environment where the professor will open up with you know what would you do in this case you do about three two to three cases a night and that opens up the discussion and really the professor is just there to lead the discussion there's never a right answer which is a little hard for someone with an engineering background to come up with you know it was hard for me to score that through my head but once you kind of figured out, it just, it made me, it didn't make me an extrovert, but it did turn me into someone who thought about speaking my opinion and then backing it up with, you know, why. And uh, my understanding is that part of your mark is based on your participation. Oh, it's over 50%. Yeah. yeah. So if you're not confident in your opinions and you don't express them, you won't pass. No. Yeah. Um, And I think the really good professors are those that then draw that out of of people. So um, it's funny because I just went back for some meetings and I took my son to a business school class. And And your son is nearly 12? Yeah, he's nearly 12. I made him read the case the night before. And he was so funny because I said, it's going to be 90 minutes. I need you to sit still. Um, And he, when we came out, I said, what did you think? And he said, it seemed like it was over in five minutes. He was just so um, engaged in the conversation that was going on. So it was pretty, um, pretty interesting because I hadn't thought about, you know, what it would seem like to an 11-year-old. It feels from Australia a very rarefied atmosphere. So the fact that the institution was open to having an 11-year-old participant speaks about their confidence. Oh, yeah. And there, I'm, I would say probably about 25% of the classes that I was that I attended that had a guest, whether it was the protagonist in the case or other people who were just sitting in to see, you know, how it all works. Um, I think a lot of people go to study the teaching method. Um, and so, yeah, it, yeah, they're pretty open to it. It's an enormous investment, I imagine, doing <laughs> an MBA at Harvard. Yes. Um, that not backwards in their fee structure. No. But I can imagine that the experience and the learnings, but be the network, is something that supports you through your career for many years afterwards. It's, it's, has that been how you found it? Yes. I, uh, you know, originally uh, I would have said probably a couple of years ago, I would have said 70% network and 30% learning. But I've just realized over the last couple of years in, in some of the board positions that I have that what it did teach me was how to bring all these different complex moving parts together and bring myself up and think about what's what are the two, three big issues. And that's what I learned there. So now I would probably say it's about 50-50. So what I learned there, it made me kind of a, a good general manager thinking at the CEO board level and my network. I can I can reach out to just about anybody. I've I have done so in the last year quite a few. <laughs> 
few times um, to my network in the U.S. Um, and it's not only just my classmates. I can, you know, the alumni database, you know, you can reach out to anybody really in there and say, I've got this issue or I'd like to, you know, discuss um, a potential partnership, you know, in these areas. So you springboard your career from Harvard into San Francisco. You do some work with some startups. How did you find yourself here in Australia? I married one. <laughs> no, um, I met my husband in San Francisco. He's Australian. He's from Melbourne. I think after my first child, we moved to Singapore, and that's where his fund is based. And then um, I wasn't really enamored with Singapore, so um, I convinced him that um, we should move here, and he, he just kind of commutes. You really have had a non-traditional career here in Australia to the extent that it, it feels like you've built your own interesting jobs to do in a way. So you've built your own investment bank advice or investment advisory firm and then all these interesting businesses that you've either built or invested in and then collaborated in larger organisations. How did that work and how did you manage to pull that all together? Really, I did not know how to start here. It's a, it's a hard network to get into. I mean, people in, in Melbourne have lived and worked here all their lives. And so I really had to kind of start small. So And they weren't impressed that you were from the US and that you'd been to Harvard? It didn't just open doors for you? I don't know. I necessarily think I mentioned it, you know, on an ongoing basis. It's hard. I mean, I had stepped out of the working world for three years when we lived in Singapore and had to come back and restart. So I started with some smaller organizations and, and working with them on strategy or uh, acquisitions. And then kind of worked my way through angel investing to working with smaller high growth businesses and early stage businesses. And the angel investing was through scale or through? through scale. Well, originally um, I invested in some early stage high growth businesses in the US alongside um, one of my good friends who's a venture capitalist and um, was very successful in some of those investments. And then um, then when scale came around, then I, I joined scale. And what's the difference between angel investing and other type of investing? Angel investing is your very early stage, very high risk. Um, well, then obviously a high opportunity, but um, really sometimes before market validation, um, you know, most of the time they have the product idea and, and, and um, maybe have a prototype or have have a few customers, but a lot of times it's before market validation. And so angel to the extent that, you know, some of them might go to heaven and <laughs> presumably angel to the extent that you appreciate the fact that you might not get a return quickly or there might not be a guaranteed return. So yes. Is that the sense that the name angel is used? I actually never really understood what the, <laughs> what the name came from. But yes, you could probably say that. Um Look, I think we look for um, a 10 times return in five to seven years is what we're looking for. So when we're in, uh, I've led a couple of due diligences where the only thing I focus on is, do we believe this is going to be, let's say it's a $2 million valuation now. Do we believe this is going to be a $20 million business in five years? And that's really what I'm working off of. That's how I'm doing my due diligence. That's where I focus my energy is answering that question. So in addition to 
making investments with your own capital, you've really helped steward some of those businesses and taken advisory roles Um, and board roles? uh, Yeah, I've taken board roles. I I have taken advisory roles as well. Look, it doesn't make a difference when you're a um, a board member of a company that small. You're advising them. <laughs> I mean, I mean that's really what you're there for. You're not making those kind of um, high level structured REM and risk and those types of me, you know, decisions. You're you're helping them getting down and dirty and helping them with everything they need help with. Um, and you really want them focused on on growing the business. So you're just there as support in, in many in many cases. So it's whether you're an advisory board member or a board member, that's that's what you're there to do. I had a chat to Janine Ellis, who's an active investor yes. um, in, through her own um, uh, retail zoo umbrella yes. and then also through the work she does on the TV show The Shark Tank. Um, and she talks about when you're backing new business ideas, it's as much about the person and the people in the business as the idea itself. Has that been your experience as well? I completely agree. Yes. I've had some experiences with entrepreneurs that just, I don't think they'll move the business forward. Um, And it's for a number of different reasons. There's a whole um, kind of uh, I guess conversation around founder syndrome, where they they're s- spent their whole you know last five to ten years selling their product that they really don't take on any feedback about the product or the service that they're providing, um, and that can be a dangerous situation. Um, so I've had experiences with that, but I've had some experiences with some outstanding entrepreneurs that um, that I think they, they're in it for the long run. They might just be serial entrepreneurs, and that's the kind of person I'd like to back. Someone, and obviously, I mean, if you think about it, what angel investors want is for someone to be thinking about the exit. We don't want to be working with someone who we think it's a lifestyle business, and that's someone who just wants to earn a paycheck, and it's a nice little business to run for 30 years. We want someone who's going to be a serial entrepreneur that will, you know, run this business, exit, run another business. And that's what we're missing here in Australia because it's in its infancy. Whereas in in the States, I worked with um, dozens of people who are serial entrepreneurs. And um, and so that's what I hope that the ecosystem will get to here in Melbourne. Unfortunately for us, I mean, a lot of people, when they, they do take the next step and have to get venture capital money, they do move to the US or Europe. And, and so the difference is venture capital money is that's a five to ten million. Yeah, a later stage. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what I didn't say about um, angel investors, which is it's usually around the you know not to six hundred k range that you're looking to you know invest, and that's why I'm saying it's it gets that market validation stage going, and once you have that, then you would go to venture capital for your next five to ten, um, and that's really to do the to um, move it to the high growth segment. And going back to the Shark Tank, in some ways it strikes me like that's what it must be like for oh, a no. scale investor. You know, there's a bunch of very no. impressive women sitting in a line and the entrepreneur has to wheel their product in and explain it to you. What's different about the Shark Tank as compared to scale? So that when people hear about scale, they've got a vision in their mind about what it's really like. Well, it's a longer process, right? So you wouldn't just do it in one go. You have several different, there's about three different screening processes that you go to. And with each one, it's a different level of information, deeper information required. Look, we are sitting around a table 
but you know, it's a very, and I would say this for not only female angel investing groups, but you know, other investing groups where there's a mix is, you know, it's a collaborative kind of conversation that you're having. Have you thought about this? Have you, but it's not in the way that the shark tank is, you know, really made for TV. Yes. It's really there for the ratings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So you'd spend a lot longer in the screening phase. And then for us, we then enter into about an eight week due diligence phase, which more um, questions are answered before we would sign a, a term sheet. One of the other things that you're passionate about and that you devote some of your time to is medical research. So mm-hmm. you sit on the commercialization committee at Walter and Eliza Hall Institute yes. of Medical Research. Why did you decide to spend some of your time involved in that? Well, this kind of goes back to the whole building the ecosystem here for um, startups and early stage high growth businesses is, um, you know, there's some amazing research coming out of WeHi and... Um, so we is the short, short name, short, the short name for Walter Institute of Medical Research. <laughs> yes. So there's some a- amazing research, it, and they're just um, with their business development organization. Now they're commercializing a lot of this great research. That's really what we should be there for: is taking that to market, right? Um, so I think they're evolving, um, and I can't speak to the overall strategy, but it is, um, there's some amazing things going on there right now in terms of commercializing and um, also just um, some great partnerships, global partnerships with some really large partners that everyone would be familiar with. So um, I probably, that's about what I can say, but um, yeah, it's really about getting that research in the cancer, immunology segment, um, diabetes out to market. And is it less about getting scientists to think more commercially and more about once the research is finished, finding ways to get it into the hands of the most people? Yeah, they have this wonderful business development um, program where they circulate some of the researchers into the biz dev department. So that's, and they've, I think they've taken around 40 research through through that. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a way to expose them to the thought process of commercializing those, that research. Um, and it's also, I think it gives them an idea of another career path that they could take. You and I both have a son and a daughter. Um, one of the things that I'm very keen for my daughter to be strong on is maths and science. Yes. <laughs> but as you know, your children choose their own path. She's really adopted that cultural norm around, oh, maths is hard and I'm a girl and I don't like it. Given that you're an engineer um, and very strong at those things, what has been your experience and what would be your advice uh, in terms of encouraging girls to see the beauty in maths? Yeah, so I, I struggle with this. Um, my daughter is very strong, but she she plays it down. And so um, what I did do, do recently is we were in Washington, D.C., and we went to the Air and Space Museum, and she was just looking at the rockets going, oh, my God, you know. Um, and she does know that I always wanted to be an astronaut. <laughs> so, <laughs> And it's funny when you say that. You've got a face that could be an astronaut's face. Anyway, so she went around and she just thought it was amazing. And we went through, you know, where uh, the Wright brothers they had some of their old planes and, and parts of their old planes and a mock-up of the original one that took the first flight and then she became really interested in it. And then I, I think, and I struggled with this with my son as well, is until they see the practical application 
of why math and science is um, important, they don't understand why they're learning it. Now, she does do a lot of um, home chemistry, <laughs> which... Is that, much, is that cooking no, or is no, that no, blowing no, stuff up? No, no, She likes to mix things up and it creates a huge mess, but I literally have to force myself to say, let it happen. Um, so, um, yeah, I just need to get her a proper chemistry set and send her outside. So, we, yeah, to send her outside and say, you can make as much mess as you want, and she makes all these potions and stuff and... You know, that's one way, too. So I think really pulling it to practically why are you using this skill is probably the only way you can get them engaged. And then as many times as you can put them in front of women who have had successful careers in those areas is fantastic because um, they, you know, that sticks in their mind. And you just seem so full of energy um, and life and vitality. What do you find works for you to help stay positive and energised about the work that you do when there's so many demands on your time? Oh, I have to get myself out and go for a run. I mean, I really have to do something for myself. And like this week I've had, I would say I'd probably had 20 hours of board meetings and pre and and that doesn't include the prep for those meetings this week alone and um my friend emailed me the other night and said let's go see girl on the train and I said yeah absolutely I, I just have to do it you know once or twice a week where I just do something that's not kid related not you know work related that's just for me and um yeah that you know take some time for yourself take a you know, a couple day, a couple evenings for yourself. In terms of looking forward to the future, what are the things that you feel really excited about? Look, I'm really excited about one of the boards I'm on, um, and well, actually, two, two of the boards that I'm on. I think, uh, you know, they're really um, they have potential to be amazing successes. Can you name them? Um, Probably not. But yeah. Not yeah. right now. Not right now. When you come back for the next yes. installment. Yes. Um, so and you're listing on NASDAQ. You can tell us about them then. Yeah, yeah, yes. Um, so I think um, those two I'm really excited about, and I just love the people that I'm working with on both of those. Um, and um, there's some great things going on at WeHi as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, that um, – my son is finishing, you know, school this year and going on to secondary school. So that personally, that's a big cha change, and I'm excited about that for him. Um, yeah, so that's that's what we're excited about. Very happy to have spent some time with you. Really appreciate you sharing your experiences with us. Success Stories was presented by theconstantinvestor.com. Our theme music was written and performed by Broke Free.